Hello and welcome to a new episode of SIS Masters Podcast. I am Arnaud Deja, founder of Sport Innovation Society, and I interview for you some of the best experts in the sports industry. Today I welcome a sports business media expert, Matt Cutler, former editor at Sport Business, lately head of communications at Two Circles. Matt will share with us his reflections on trends that have driven the sports business industry. Hi, Matt. How are you today back home in North London? Hey, Arnaud. Yeah, good. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Yeah, it's just approaching the weekend. The sun is shining for January and it's uh, not too cold. Um, so, yeah, life is good at the moment. Good game coming this weekend? Good case. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm an Aston Villa fan. So, uh, and we're, so we're, we've got the Friday night game. And, uh, yeah, it's an interesting time for, to be an Aston Villa fan with, with Unai Emery. Now, now in place, um, and, and your famous goalkeeper, and famous... <laughs> our famous, our famous, <laughs> our famous goalkeeper. Yeah, who, um, who I can't work out whether his reputation has improved or um, gone down after the World Cup. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway, he's, uh, he's, he's, we we love having him here, and he's a yeah, he's a big a big part of our team. <laughs> Good. So very happy to welcome you today at SIS Masters Podcast. Uh, we're going to speak about something way more serious, strategies and technologies that will drive long-term commercial benefits for the sports industry. That's quite a um, uh, challenging topic, I would say. But before going, going to the topics, I'd like to know, I mean, you're English. Most of the, a lot of sports are born in England. Which one make you fall in love with sport? Definitely. Well, uh, I don't think I really had a choice about my kind of my passion for sports. So all I, I, I well, I'm from a, a family of um, sports fans, all from Birmingham in, in in the UK, which is you know where Aston Villa is or where Aston is. Um, and f- football is the main. I mean, in the UK, just generally, football is is definitely the number one sport. Well, the number one sport globally, right? But definitely in the UK. If you're particularly if you're a young boy back in the 80s and 90s where I was growing up, you basically played football ever since I can remember. Whether that's kicking a can around in the in the playground or you know on the on the local pitches. So uh, yeah, I could I played football as long as I can remember. I didn't have a choice about being a Villa fan. I could you know, I don't really remember thinking, do I want to support this team? I always have them, and uh, which has its ups and downs. Um, so, so yeah, f- so f- football is definitely the, uh, the n- has been the number one sport to me. Although I would say that over my life, my kind of interest in sport has it's, it's gone up and down over uh, basically across growing up. And I definitely, interestingly, I, f- I feel like my engagement with football in particular is probably at its highest it's ever been, even more so than when I was a kid. I don't know whether that's just representative of the fact that now you can watch as much football basically as you can as you have time for whereas when I was growing up in the early 90s well it was only just at the start of when when particularly the Premier League was being televised um so yeah so so fo- football is the one that the, the, that takes over most of my time and I have I have certain interest in well to, to be honest lots of the British sports cricket cricket and rugby I'd say the other two that, that I would follow outside of football yeah rugby God save the Queen when it was a Twickenham <laughs> against France, I, I think I would cry most of the time listening to the French anthem and after the English one. Ooh, that's something yeah. very special. Well, it's a better time to be a France rugby fan than an English rugby fan at the moment, going into the World Cup next year. Yeah, oh, this year. So it's this year, isn't 
we'll see at the World Cup at the end. What what matters is the big tournaments, not the small ones. But uh, <laughs> but yes, it's a good moment uh, indeed. Do you remember your first memory at Aston Villa? I I do. I don't. I so I I remember the first game I went to when I was about four or five. Um, well, what I can I can definitely. I can remember being there. I can't really remember details and memories are interesting because I think I probably have memories in my brain that didn't actually happen. But I've, I've <laughs> over the years thinking about what my first moment with, with football is because, you know, it's an important moment in your life. Um, but yeah, going to Villa Park when I was four or five, <clears throat> early 90s, and we, it was Villa against Tottenham, uh, which is interesting given I, I now live in London, very close to the Tottenham Stadium. Uh, and David Platt was the big Aston Villa player then before he moved to Italy uh, to go play for Bari. Uh, and he scored a hat-trick and Villa won. I actually don't know the score, but he uh, he scored a hat-trick. Um, I don't actually remember much about the football game, but I do remember being there. Yeah. And I don't know, it's definitely true where, you know, going to watch, particularly there's, there's something different about watching sport live versus watching on TV. As, as soon as you get engrossed in the moment and the people around you and I was there with my family who you know it's like it's generations of people in my family have gone to Villa Park for over probably 100 150 years and so yeah. definitely something definitely something special special about it and still it's interesting still when I when I go to Villa Park there's something about when you walk through the stands and you see the pitch there's there's some kind of there's a very very strange feeling about doing that every every single time now, maybe even more so when I see the pitch I feel like butterflies in my stomach, <laughs> um, which is which is uh, yeah which is I don't know it's just an interesting feeling it's it's obviously something that's so kind of ingrained in my in my brain heart soul whatever you want to say. Nice 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 nice. So you've been working the last I mean you're young you're under forty. Um, uh, you've been working in the sports business all your life, basically. And to make a quick summary, uh, so there were two big chapters. You're on the verge of studying the third one, uh, but there were two big chapters. First one uh, being at Sport Business, a very famous um, company and with interesting contents. And you were writing and covering from 2008 to 2015. And the second one, when you became the head of communications of two circles, seeing at this time and still cutting edge agency. So let's start with the first chapter at Sport Business. You got to cover, you got to write, you got to think and rethink and redesign in some ways. <laughs> Most of the stories uh, that, were, that were mattering at that time. That were, uh, so you have quite a unique, unique knowledge. What were the topics that were important? Because maybe today we speak a, a, a lot about metaverse and we did a lot about data mm -hmm. but in this period what was important to the key stakeholders yeah it's a great question it's really interesting to kind of think back to 2008 which is which is when i started at, at sport business um <clears throat> just a bit, bit i can just give you a bit of background to how i got there because i yeah. I, yeah. I always really wanted to be a sports journalist uh, ever since i was maybe kind of 19 or 20 and I just happened to take it. My first job was at Sport Business, so it wasn't necessarily covering sports as I thought I would have done. Because I kind of thought I would be at the Champions League final, watching it, you know, writing a match report about uh, Man United against Real Madrid or whatever the game would have been. Um, but I almost, almost just because that was the first job I took, it was covering the 
almost covering business as much as sport, which looking back now, I feel super lucky that I went that route because, well, one, there's how many people are writing that match report from the Champions League final? Thousands of people and finding a point of difference within that is, is, is really difficult. Whereas in t- even in 2008, the sport business industry was really, there, weren't that, there wasn't that much coverage of it, not just on a B2B level, which I was doing, so writing for the sports industry, but also in the more mainstream publications. For sure, they would cover the business of sport, but it wasn't something that was covered that much. But definitely now, you know, look at something like the Super League or when Manchester United gets a new shirt sponsor. These, these are stories that are, back page news in lots and lots of different markets. So I feel I was very, very fortunate to um, uh, to, to almost be on that journey and, and get a break in, in, in the uh, sport business. Um, but yeah, 2008 was quite interesting. It's an interesting era for a few reasons. One, it was um, it was kind of the start of the social media revolution. You know, these, the Facebooks and Twitters and YouTubes of the world had just started out and it's 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 almost <clears throat> it's almost odd to think of a world without Twitter or Facebook or or YouTube just because they're so kind of ubiquitous and everyone uses them all day every day without even necessarily you know thinking of there was a world before it um, and you know these these platforms growing uh, huge you know billions of users uh, so that was one of the, that was one of the, the the big things that we were covering it was how is social media going to change sport how would these big platforms with big with huge users what was what was sports approach to them because clearly they all they almost offered another route to to market to to fans um which is hugely you know it's great for sport because if you're a rights holder um it gives you more eyeballs it gives you more opportunities to engage with fans who might not necessarily engage with you that much and also internationally right which for most sports properties, the international fan base is the, the one that, that, that offers the biggest growth opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously a hugely positive story, but what we've kind of seen over the 15 years or so since then is that, yes, these social media platforms are super, uh, are really important to the, the way people consume media, but also at the same time, as sport invested more through these platforms, there was it was delivering an audience for these for these social media platforms that they didn't own. And now we see a shift the other way, 15 years on, where sports properties are all trying to work out what's their own, whatever they want to call it, D to C, OTT. It's all kind of the same thing, really. Their own digital platforms where they can engage with their fans directly because they haven't necessarily grown grown their own audience. Um, so that was that's that's been a really <clears throat> that's been a really interesting thing to follow, and, and also the, the the way these platforms have evolved over that period of time. So. YouTube used to be the place where if you were a sports rights holder, you would maybe th- throw a few clips on there or some documentary coverage. But now, you know, it's showing live sport. It's showing live NFL and paying lots of money for it. Um, so so these big players, these big Silicon, Va- Silicon Valley platforms, their role in sport has been, that's, that's something we've kind of covered, um, covered the whole time and... And I, and, and, and I guess till now, we don't know yet where it's going to go. It's funny because maybe at some time we were thinking, oh, is that, what do I do with social media? Is that a competitor? If I'm a media, is that a competitor or not? Is it, and, and, I, and it seems that nowadays uh, 
same questions are, are being asked in a more mature way, but same questions. Yeah, completely, completely. And it's and it's and also no one knows the answer, right? But I think the best answer that we have at the moment is that it's almost I think it's almost quite simple to say, but really hard to achieve is that there's six billion people out there who most of which are online all day, every day with smartphones and they're consume we're consuming life in all these different platforms. So, you know, we're on WhatsApp, we're on Zoom, we're on Twitter, we're streaming something. And it's it's you need to you need to reach people in the native environment that they're consuming media. Yep. But also at the same time, clearly, if the economic if the economics of that don't necessarily work out, you need to also be building your own your own platform. So you need to you need almost need to reach people where they are, and also you need to try and influence people. And it doesn't happen overnight to to grow your own platforms, and that's you know the whole owned and operated. And I'm sure we'll come onto it later in this chat, but the whole. Yeah. OTT direct to consumer thing, which is easier than ever, but hard, hard, harder than ever, or hard to achieve, right? Um, uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I think, and and you know, new platforms don't necessarily come up overnight, but you find new platforms that absolutely um, they grow exponentially, and often sport is quite slow to 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 uh, engage with them. TikTok's yeah. a great example where TikTok now has been, you know, one of the leading um, leading media platforms, me- leading media social platforms for ages. But uh, I don't know whether you're on TikTok. I have on TikTok, but, but there's no, there's not a huge amount of sport on it from what oh. I can I can gather. And maybe that's fine because like sport has, has known in the past that you can take a bit, you know, it's worth taking a bit of time to really understand your strategy rather than, oh, there's a new platform, let's dive in on it. Because that's also happened in the past and it's a lot of time and resource into something that who knows whether that's going to be there in two months' time, let alone two years' time. Mm. So one of the big topics was social media growth and because it was something new. TV rights was another one of the big topics, right? Uh, because everyone was thinking, ah, oh, it's going to stop. Are these skyrocket prices to get the rights? And it's, it's going to stop. And so what do you think of that? <clears throat> yeah, I remember... Um, Yeah, I remember speaking to people in 2008. Yeah, to, to your point, you know, well, when's the when's the bubble going to burst? Was always the question, and the question would always be soon or next cycle, and then <laughs> and then and then every cycle for the likes of you know the pre- particularly the bigger rights ones, you know, the Premier League or the NFLs or the FIFAs or the UEFAs of the world, there was all, always or, or in most cases always a new either <clears throat> new value being delivered, whether that's um, kind of offering more games or new operators coming in and seeing live sport as a really attractive investment to make, which has, which is, yeah, which has seen even since 2008, seen rights fees spiral. I mean, I remember <clears throat> the Premier League international rights. It's it about then where the Premier League really, really took off in terms of interest and in terms of attracting huge amount of um, Uh, competition, pay TV competition in kind of South Southeast Asia, which is where lots of the lots of the lots of the growth has come from. But also at the same time, the Premier League in North America is still huge amount huge amounts uh, for growth in you know one of the, the biggest economy in the world, or you know one of the largest populations in the world. Um, so yeah, there's definitely and, and you know the you know recently the NFL did a hundred billion dollar deal for for domestic for domestic rights. So there's 
I don't know. I'd be a fool to say when's it going to burst because because who knows? And you've got you know you've got someone like Apple who you know, I, I don't know where they rank, but Apple's you know definitely in the top five or top ten most valuable companies in the world. Yeah. Um, and they realise the importance of sport, and but, but still haven't scratched the surface in terms of their their investment. Uh, and so who knows? In ten years' time, maybe it'll be some kind of metaverse provider who who offers some kind of solution. Uh, for for live TV for live live sports rights, um, who, who knows who knows? But but also there's um I guess it's also it's it's really I was talking about kind of the NFL and the Premier League, but, but clearly there has been some kind of impact outside maybe in kind of the tier two or tier three rights properties because particularly pay TV, which has been the biggest contributor to sports growth probably over the last fifty years. Clearly they have budgets for rights and that have grown but once they've picked up the the bigger ones how much they've got spare for for the the second and third tier ones is is uh what differs market by market but uh, so it's not necessarily rosy for, for for all sports rights holders um but yeah we in 2008 we were definitely talking talking to people talking to industry experts about the bubble bursting um hopefully i never wrote hopefully i never wrote that you could probably Google it <laughs> and, and call me out on it, but I hope not. <laughs> but it's interesting to see because, as you say, I mean, they're still skyrocketing. So, so bigger become bigger properties are selling every cycle for more new players, new way to segment segmentize the offers uh, for media. And it's uh, if you look at the Premier League, you know very well it's crazy to think that now their international rights. Represent more money than their domestic rights, uh, it's, which is impressive. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And and also another thing to think about is that the as I guess technology and the internet has made the world more global, that there's still plenty of uh, markets out there that are you know that are developing where you know they 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 are their wealth and disposable income is increasing. I think in particular places in Southeast Asia and Africa. Um, maybe even South America. I don't know. You know that market better than me. Um, and there aren't that many. It goes back to the old, uh, the old thing about sport is that there are not that many moments in the world that make people stop at the same time. Yeah. You know, the Super Bowl, the World Cup final. Uh, I, I saw the list of a top 100 um, sports broadcasts for the U.S. market come out um, a couple of weeks ago, and still, sport absolutely dominates the. The appointment of view of the media and i don't think that's going to change anytime soon maybe even it's going to get the sport maybe even become more important for for media um because sports one of those things where you know it's it's particularly when you're a kid you know and, and at school sport is still super integral to lots of people's lives uh, and the amount of stories that you hear about sport are they're, they're out there you know people I think sport is more relevant to the world now than it has ever been, thanks to thanks to technology and the internet. I don't know. I don't know whether you agree with that. I, I think yeah, the power of life is unique to sport. Um, it, eventually, people will consume in a different way, but still, the power of life is there. And if you look at the audience of the World Cup, they, they have been bigger than ever. When everyone says people consume sport in a different way and less time on free to air TV or pay TV and blah, blah, blah. And at the end, it's a big event. The audience are bigger and bigger. <laughs> so yeah. it's, um, it's a paradox. Uh, and I, maybe 
I don't know what you think, but maybe everything is complementary. Is building up uh, to raise the profile of sports biggest events and stars. Yeah, I think so. I think so, and and also sport. The the the, the higher the the more sport gets covered, and the more interested it it is, it just becomes more important to lots of different stakeholders. Uh, you know, we see uh, you know we see now how important sport is to countries, right? We saw the Qatar World Cup. We see Saudi Arabia, which is a country that's trying to be more influential on the world, you know, in the world just generally. How do they do that? They can do that through trade deals. They can do that through kind of politics. But sport is is front and center of how they're how they're going to do it. Uh, and th- and that means that you know sport gets investment. You know, lots of that is going into Cristiano Ronaldo's wages. So I'm not sure how much of that trickles down to the rest of the the sports economy. Um, but but yeah, I, I think. Ultimately, I think that's that's a, that's a positive thing for the industry that we work in, right? Because as long as sport is relevant to the world, the um, you know we're, we're uh, we can commercialize it in a way that is is is, is better for everyone. I think. Yeah, and it seems a number one income driver for the big sports organization, so it's key to mm-hmm. maintain the relevance. Mm. So TV rights, social media were two key topics, and. At that time, we're starting to appear a lot of tech with, with a lot of expectations from top players. I mean, from Facebook or Snapchat or Google. And they were investing in many things that we don't know where they are now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. No, this, it's, it's a good point. And, and, and um, maybe that goes back to the point I made earlier about perhaps why we see now a slight hesitancy when it comes to sport to invest in whatever the latest new shiny thing is. Um, you know, what's the new, uh, you know, the metaverse being the new shiny thing at the moment or, or NFTs being the new shiny, shiny thing at the moment. Um, because yeah, I remember what, 2008 to t- 2010, the likes of yeah, three, three DTV. That was a great example. I don't know whether you remember that, but like we, I remember at sport business, we were covering that extensively for, for a while, you know, TV manufacturers, um, rights holders selling specific 3D rights. It was a bit around the time that the the, um, the first Avatar movie came out, which was yeah. 2009, maybe. Um, uh, you know, the second one's just out now. Yeah. Um, which is quite interesting because I, I, I don't know whether you've seen it, but the I remember going to see Avatar first time round with the with the whole you know the glasses on the cinema. Yeah, and it was the. Um, I, I remember, and I was a lot younger, but I remember it being fantastic. I remember the film being fantastic. I remember the experience being fantastic. And then over, over Christmas, I went to watch the second one. And it was just like a bit of, I don't know, it was just a bit of a faff, really. It was just like, oh, I'm just going to get these glasses. And, you know, how much is this actually adding to it? Um, but it's interesting because that, I know, that, that's a good example of where lots of lots of people invested a lot of money in, in 3D broadcasts and thinking that it might be, <clears throat> this, the cinema is different, isn't it? Because the cinema is like a one-off experience, but how popular was that ever going to be in people's homes? Particularly, you have to pay a lot lot more money from it as a consumer. Easy to say in hindsight, right? Um, but there's that, or there's the, um, you remember the like, kind of Google glasses and Snapchat glasses where people recording them or, you know, or seeing a kind of augmented reality with the Google glasses. Uh, these type of things that on paper make, make, make super sense. It's all about, delivering deeper engagement with sport or the world around you, but maybe overestimating how 
bigger change it would be to the way people consume sport and i think actually the way what it's shown us is that people want to consume sport in the easiest way possible uh -huh. um regardless of how much potentially it could um improve your experience people people want what do people want they want sport at an accessible price point in high quality and to be able to do it with their you know their friends and family and i think anything that that um that tries to change that kind of tried and tested way of watching sport is it's really difficult to change consumer habits regardless of how <clears throat> regardless of how how beneficial it, it will be to you um so yeah and, and to, to be honest i'm sure there's plenty of those that will we'll, we'll, see, we'll see happen around at the moment and i feel part of me feels for the people particularly at the at the rights holders so the teams the leagues the federations who you know that they, they get presented almost every day with a new yeah like with a new shiny tech thing and say this will enhance your your fans uh, experience of sport and trying to <clears throat> trying to work out whether that will be the case is, is really hard because you're, you're basically trying to predict human behavior yeah at, you know with no testing ground and, and maybe it's your i don't know i'm not an expert on that but maybe it's the early adopters because as you say consumer habits are hard to change early adopters could be so younger than generations but they stick to the cell phone. Uh, mm. So any other accessories might seems not to be easy to uh, to get growth. Definitely, definitely, and, and also, and also, you're you're completely right. And there is also an element there around the really understanding what drives someone who's, I mean, not just like 18, but someone who's like nine and consuming sport. It's just it sounds obvious, but it's so different from when you and I were growing up, when there was very, very few options. There's, I think about my my nieces who have only ever known an iPhone or have only ever known the internet, and mm. they're just 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 the way they operate in their lives is so it's so different. And sport trying to, and some of them will find sport organically, and some of them will learn from you know they'll learn from the family around them, and they'll go to live sports experiences and think, you know, this is great because this is, this is around me. It's live. It's an experience, but, um, but it's how in the, in the daily kind of flow of how they, how they operate in life, how sport can get into that is, um, yeah, is, 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 is super difficult. Um, mm. of which I also don't have the answers to that. I, w I wish I did. <laughs> yeah. We'll be being in it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, So there were the most, the biggest challenges, TV rights, social media, also tech fads, um, always interesting and so, lots of learnings from that. One of the key learnings was data. And after seven years of sport business, you made a strong decision because you could have stayed at sport business. I mean, it's a good company that has been growing uh, constantly. So you made, you make a big challenge. You said, Oh, why not going to a cutting edge agency like Two Circle? Why is that? Yeah. What what was attractive you to that yeah. company? Yeah, that's so. Yeah, so I'd kind of having said at the start of this podcast that I was really, you know, I really wanted to be a sports journalist. So that, you know, I did it for seven years and I absolutely loved it. But also, the more I worked in the industry, I was always meeting new people and thinking, you know, what I don't know, what what could I do that would use my skills um, that I'd, that I'd learned to sport business and do something slightly different. And uh, and so, and and so, yeah, after. After it didn't, it wasn't anything that happened particularly quickly. But I remember speaking to 
the uh, the people at Two Circles, in particular Matt Rogan, who was one of the founders founders of Two Circles, um, he'd actually I'd met him a long time ago when you know Two Circles were approaching me and saying, "Oh, <clears throat> Matt, you should write a really you should write about this agency. They're they're super <laughs> interesting. They're doing really cool stuff with data that no one else is doing." <clears throat> but you know, got to meet with them and. I really, really fell in love with their vision and the people and and the company and um and, and managed to to we worked out a role for me there which which was not that different really from sport business it was it was more about like kind of telling interesting stories but at this time around it was telling interesting stories about the use of data about sports fan behavior about the right use of new technologies uh, about g- good case studies about impact and who's which which rights holders are uh are creating really impactful strategies in the in the right way and so so that was yeah so that was the the move that i took and i learned um learned so much about um the sports industry there uh through i guess through through the lens of data and digital for for one of a for one of a for one of a breath phrase can can you remember uh the audience what is a unique value proposition from uh two circles uh just to understand what was and it's still so interesting in what the company is doing for sure for sure um it's worth saying i don't work at two circles uh, anymore but this is but answering this question was the you know this is the bread and butter of what i would uh, uh what i used to do when i was there uh, it actually changed quite a lot over the time i was there first of all it was all about how sports rights holders so specifically yeah teams leagues federations so those who are putting on the products could understand the customers fans whatever you want to call it of sport better to to do two things one to basically create better um products for fans to improve their um consumption of sport but critically also to make money uh and and data was the kind of the key within that so to, that was that was the real kind of usp the two circles had around it like two circles worked well, at least when i first joined there's about 100 100 clients that they work with and with each one of those um every client team had super smart data analysts working for them and just really in the numbers about how, who who is watching who who's consuming their sport how they're doing it why they're doing it and once you have that understanding of uh not just sports fan behavior but kind of to our early conversation human behavior you can just you can just have you have just a better idea of of the strategies to to take or or if you have an idea for a strategy you can test it you can test it because you just have a better idea of whether it's going to work or not um so that was it and and, and some of the main things the two circles would do within that is one get more people to come and watch sport um so position and market sport live sport in particular and live experiences as something that people would do instead of i don't know going to watch music or actually frankly sit at home and watch netflix so how do you what, what is it about it goes exactly to the first conversation we had what is it about the live sports experience that isn't just open to you and me you know you and i know about what amazing live sports experiences just because that's all we've ever known but what about for the people who have never been to sport before Yeah. So <clears throat> there's a big element of that and there's other areas around it um, to do with kind of media and <clears throat> Tusa was um was and is super active in strategies to um to create direct to consumer um media platforms in particular and market those uh, and around sponsorship so if you have a really good understanding of who 
the sports fan is and what makes them tick. That is a really important, a really big importance to sponsors who, you know, sponsors come into sport because they want to influence or sell products to, to a highly engaged audience. Um, so data integral to, to, all, to all parts of that. Hmm. Two topics I, I, I like to speak about in this. One is direct to consumer. Uh, most of the sports industry, if you speak about properties like leagues, clubs, uh, big events, it's B2B business. So you, you, you sell TV rights, you sell sponsorships. That's where the big figures are. D2C coming to um, ticketing, merchandising. Uh, but the move to direct to consumer has been one of the main goals of most sports organizations uh, in the last years, uh, whether it is OTT or what, what do you think? How far, how far we do you think that it's, it's, there's room for a lot of growth or hard it is to, you know, to embrace such a radical change? Yeah. Good question. Big question. Um, I think one of the things that I've noticed is if you, if you start going into a conversation about D to C, the, it's very easy to go into a conversation specifically about streaming sport, um, which is a which is which is a big part of it, right? Because you know the li live sport and being able to show that globally is a huge part of it. But <clears throat> particularly, I know if you speak to people at Two Circles, they'd be for them D to C is is it's more about how does a sports property speak to, engage, communicate directly with with a fan. And ticketing is, is, is a great example of that, where the ticketing has traditionally as an industry has been, well, it, it's very, very complex. And there's some of it that is quite, B, there's B2B. So particularly in North America, you'll find properties who sell a load of tickets onto a secondary ticket exchange, and then that reaches the end consumer. So if you think about the, the rights holder who would be the two circles client they're you know they're basically they would sell a quarter of their tickets to someone else and you know outsource outsource that outsource that whereas actually if you if you start building a relationship and a transaction with a fan not only when you transact with a fan you you know a lot more data about them you know who they are you know how they transact uh you can also just deliver better experiences to them and what one of the big i'm not sure i'm not quite sure how this um what this is like um uh <clears throat> over in over in central and south america but in the uk now almost all sport is is digital tickets so the the, the paper ticket has almost gone now um which for me is great because you know if i buy a ticket and it goes straight to my phone that's amazing not only is that that good for me because you know i don't have to worry about well i have to worry about losing my phone but i don't have to worry about losing my ticket um but the fact that it's on the, you know, the tickets on the phone, you can track when someone scans into the stadium, you can track everything about the about the transaction. Um, and what when you start thinking about the various ways that a sports property would engage or sell to a fan, and bringing those all together, that's that's really the holy grail. So it's so it's not just about like we sold a ticket here, but someone's also playing fantasy sport here. Or someone's also buying a shirt here. How do you make sure that 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 was all talking to each other? Because once you know that someone buys a ticket, or someone buys a uh, a shirt, or someone really uh, <coughs> plays fantasy and really engages with this specific player, you're really bringing bringing what they would call a you know single customer view. Like you're really understanding this one fan 
way better than than you ever have. And that's really that's really D to C because it's it's your it's the right sort of talking to them directly. But as soon as you have you know as soon as you go back to the old B two B world, if if you think about as rights holder sells their sports rights to a you know a broadcaster and they broadcast it, they don't they don't really know at all who who is watching it or how they're watching it. Um, and particularly in a world where it's easier to go to to interact with someone than it ever has primarily because everyone's connected to the internet and everyone's got a mobile phone. That is clearly going to be the future. I'm saying it like this is super, I think this is one of your other points. It's, it's not easy. Very, very, <laughs> it's very easy to say. It's very difficult to, to achieve because not because of a few things. One is that there's a mindset thing where one of the reasons why I think um, we've seen, particularly on the streaming side of things, there's, 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 there's there isn't really a a a a kind of a mainstream direct consumer media proposition yet, at least not the one that's run by a rights holder. You've got some that are really big, you know, NFL Game Pass is a good example of one that's really big, but compared to the money they would make from that compared to the TV rights is absolutely tiny. But it's very, very it one it's easier and one you're making more money from selling the rights B2B. So why would you why would you why would you check why would you change that mindset? You're going to have to eventually, but the the later you can do that, just it's it's just more straightforward straightforward to do. And then there's also like a there's also a tech thing like to be able to find that understanding, it requires a lot of investment. It requires a lot of people and and technology. Um, so I think you, I think what we'll find is it's it's it's, a, it's an ongoing it's an ongoing transition, and um, it's a, particularly in the UK, it's a transition. Brightsoft has been on for the last ten years, and they're going to be on it probably as long as as long as you and I are still working in the sports industry. Yeah, sometimes would you agree with it's a way the more you know your fans, the more ability you have to engage with them and obviously push a, a right variety of and range of products, but also put pressure on uh one one side, put pressure on the uh media right buyers. Because the more you can engage with the fans, the more value you have for the uh, media right buyers, and give more value to the sponsors. Because you, if you your ability to engage with the fans is a key value for the sponsors, definitely, definitely, definitely. And I think this, particularly from a sponsor perspective, it's interesting you picked up on that because I think that will be the. I think we're quite early stages of that from a at least from a data side of things. Uh-huh. Um, but that will, I think that is the future because there's lots of, if you think about the big um, industries out there just in the world, there's still lots and lots of industries that don't sponsor sport. Yeah. You know, lots and lots of consumer facing brands that aren't, you know, beer or cars that don't, don't you know, they spend a lot, lot of money on uh, kind of TV advertising, but not, not so much sport. But if sport can, to, can go to, I don't know what a brand would be, like maybe like a supermarket. There's, I don't. I can't think off the top of my head a, a, a huge amount of supermarkets who do sports sponsorship. Yeah. But say to them, you know, this is your target audience. We know, we know exactly who those are within our fan base. We know how to reach them. We know what to make make them tick. We can deliver offers uh, to them through you, and we can track what is successful or not. That's almost that. That is kind of sponsorship 3.0. Um, but again, not. not being able to being set up to do that is is quite tricky. Um, 
because also if you think about using supermarkets as another example, the, super, the stuff that I was talking about earlier, this is the stuff that supermarkets have been doing for, for years, right? Yeah. We, if, if you have a loyalty card at a supermarket, they, they almost know more about the what we're going to be spending money on than, than, than we do before we even enter the shop. So it's about support, understanding, understanding fans, fans, what makes them tick and being able to, to market to them directly. And would that, would that mean, you speak about mindset, um, you speak about embracing tech, and that, would that mean also quite a change in the skills of the teams inside the organizations? Because most sports organizations, their leaders are sports-focused uh, with business. Well, if you look at the U.S., actually, it's sports and business, two heads, Uh, so it's been changing. Um, but in Europe and in most of international federations, still it's quite sports focused and digit traditional business model with TV rights sponsorship and so on. So embracing new skills and new people and welcoming them is not that easy when you yourself, you're not, uh, it's not your DNA. No, no, completely. And I, I think you're right. I think we'll see the, the skill set change change quite a lot. What, one of the things I've noticed, um, even just anecdotally over the years, is seeing sport hire more people from outside of sport. So more people from the music industry or from the entertainment industry, I guess primarily because those industries have been five or 10 years maybe ahead of sport um, uh, in terms of the strategies and, and the skill sets required. Uh, so, so yeah, I, th I, I think that, I think that just talking from experience, just, just data generally, like to be I think data used to be a bit of a scary, scary word, really, because you think about, oh, you know, embracing data. That means I've got to be have my head in Excel spreadsheets or uh, learning to code or things like that. <clears throat> It couldn't be any further from the truth. There's lots of there's lots of very easy, straightforward stuff that people who are data literate can just just make better decisions on a on a on a day to day basis. Um, Uh, the, 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 the one the, I think one of the big challenges is, is is actually around the kind of technology because the technology that is the thing that requires huge amounts of expertise and I think it's tough to say to an international federation for instance that that isn't a FIFA or a UEFA or even maybe a FIBA to say like you need to be investing in this tech infrastructure and the people to run this and the people to constantly improve and iterate it and understand the latest trends and how AI are going to improve or maybe change what you do. It's really, it's, it's, it's really tough to be able to ask people to do that. But uh, so I think there's, there's still going to be a role for particular like agencies and tech providers uh, to be the specialists in that. But the, I guess the, the chief marketing officer or the chief commercial operators of the, of the future Are going to be those who really understand how the different um, channels to fans operate, how they complement each other, where the investment needs to go, and and also how do you how do you make money off the back of them? Because there's no you know there's no one size fits all. There's no there'll be some sports properties for whom a direct consumer streaming platform just you just don't need to do it. Even though everyone else is doing it, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to do it. Or what is your version of that? Uh, or what do your sponsors want? So, um, yeah, it's, I think it's probably, it's way harder than it has ever been to be in the commercial team of a rice holder. That's for sure. <laughs> That's complex. 
Well, yeah. on, on your experience the last years, um, I don't know if you can say it or not, but do you have a good example of someone embracing and getting results? Because we might we might think uh, it's a way it's a it's a path to explore because you need to know your fans, you need to get the data, you need to be able to analyze. But you most of the time when you start doing or doing it, you don't know what the results will be and when. For sure, for sure. I think um, I think the be the best examples that spring to mind immediately are around women's sport. And I say women's sport, and that, I think that's probably because it's something that's really grown in interest, at, but it's it's had almost very little investment for as long as we can remember, right? So it's almost a, it's almost like a yeah. startup sport. Yeah. And yeah. so with a startup sport like that, you can, you're able to do things that you haven't done previously. And then I think to, you know, lots of my examples are biased to the UK, but the the women's super league so the top tier of women's foot, uh, women's club football in the in the premier league have done some really really innovative stuff particularly around their media media rights so currently they have uh they have three main media deals because they kind of tore up what they did before and went start from scratch they work with the bbc in the uk so have a free to so they have a certain amount of games free to wear yeah. watched by millions because they're on channels one or two Yep. They work with Sky Sports, so the real specialists in investing in sport and investing in the products who also pay a rights fee for it. And then all the other content they run on their own direct-to-consumer streaming platform. Um, so if you can watch a game some so you can watch a game somewhere legally, which you can't do with the Premier League if you're based in the UK. You you, you know, well, you can't watch 3 p.m. kickoffs if they're not televised. And they've got exposure there because they realize for women's sports to grow, it needs to have visibility. It has really high high quality investment from Sky Sports and really treating it like a premium product, which yeah. for women's sports to grow, it needs to be looked at that. And then with the direct consumer thing, they've got data gathering, interacting with fans and understanding who they are. And it's really, you know, the big properties out there, the big men's properties, they can't just, you know, they can't start from scratch because, you know, they've got historic revenues coming in. I mean, you also just can't say, okay, for this cycle, I'm going to reduce the amount of money we're going to get in by half because people are like no, people rely on that on that yeah. on that coverage. Um, and and the smart stuff is that is really going to come by um, using the data that they're getting. Like how do, how do you trying to understand how is a women's football fan different from a men's football fan? Yeah, because they are. Yeah. And how do you get people to go and watch women's football for the first time in person? Because again, to, to our early conversation, like that is one of the best ways you can get yeah. lifelong engagement with a fan if they can see it, see it in real life, particularly when they're young. Um, and there's been good examples, and, and it's a similar situation with women's cricket in the in the UK as well. Um, so they're, they're 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 the ones that, that, that spring to mind. But that's yeah, it's it's almost a unique situation because they've been able to almost start from scratch. I know it's interesting. Women women food women's sport in general and women football doesn't. Uh, as long this week, it's women football package uh, with a bunch of rights on from different leagues, competitions, and so on. So they bet on it as a way to get new clubs. I think it's almost 10 euros as a package. Uh, so it's another offer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, and it's a different way to present football. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I noticed that as well, and it's it really fascinating to uh, to see how that takes off. But yeah, also, and you know, it's 
well priced for some really the quality of particularly lots of the club football in the the big European leagues is is absolutely is is really excellent. It's really excellent in women's football. So I feel, yeah, it's a good strategy to take. Yeah, we're going to see how it works, but it's um, I'm sure it's based on a lot of research. Uh, the potential of it. So now now you you're on the verge of starting your third uh, chapter in your professional life, uh, which is quite exciting. <laughs> We've been speaking about what was in some mouse of every leaders and decision makers uh, on your first chapter. Now you've been on data. What do you think will be the drivers? Well, obviously data will keep being a driver. And But what do you think will be the drivers uh, that could make a big difference in the coming decade? Definitely. I'm not going to... The meta, the metaverse is, is an area where I'm really kind of... I, I don't feel like I'm qualified to, to talk about it, but that I think that, for me, represents, particularly at a Gen Z or kind of Gen Alpha, i.e. younger than Gen Z level, like how yeah. how how fandom is ignited in... Well, and not in sports fans, but making people sports fans because it's the Roblox or the Minecraft or the EA sports of the world who are probably doing as much to influence people at a young age uh, into the passions that they have for the rest of their life in the same way that it was for you and I watching, you know, listening to the radio or reading the paper when we, when kind of, when, when we were kids. So I feel like they're the, that is definitely an area to watch. And fa fantasy sport is another, gr another great example of that where it's, it's a, it's a growing product, which is um, associated to the main sport, but it's like almost the gamification of sport is something that can bring in long-term, long-term fans and how sports interacts with those um, is going to be really interesting. I know um, just through two circles, so Wimbledon tennis, Uh, the last year did a, a tie-up with Roblox, yeah. um, which is really successful, and a, a recognition from them that you know how, how who is the next generation of, of of tennis fans, and how do you how do you get to them? Um, so I feel that's going to be I feel that's going to be super interesting, and um, yeah, I just know I've been I've been um, kind of talking to the people at EA Sports relatively recently and learning some more about their business, and you know there are millions of people playing football, soccer through EA Sports and they they know all about their fandom because you know they analyze the data around it uh, and these are people who are playing hours hours of soccer a day and so it just we're, I would bet you that in 10 or 15 years you'll have people turning up at Old Trafford from maybe from South America and if you ask them okay how did you why are you a Manchester United supporter they're like oh it's because I picked Cristiano Ronaldo when he signed for Manchester United, he was my favorite player. And then I just played with them ever since. So that's, I, I, I think that's super interesting. It's, it's crazy. If you, you were mentioning Wimbledon and Roblox, uh, FIFA has a deal with Roblox as well. If I'm not mistaken, Roblox is a bigger business than FIFA business. Wow. <laughs> and it's only, uh, it's less than 20 years old uh, company. <laughs> so the so, so challenge on what you mentioned is, How you how you get into the alpha's life, and maybe it's not just the sport itself, but the gamification of the sport that is the answer. Yeah, 
I think so. I think so. All, all, and and it's media, right? There's there's no there's 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 a reason why uh, I saw um, a couple of weeks ago. Netflix announced the most recent set of investments in documentaries in around, around sport. Yeah. The the thinking of that being, you know, the classic example of Drive to Survive is that yeah. there's people watch there's people watching that. They're not necessarily watching it because they're thinking, oh, F1 is a rights holder. They're watching it because they're thinking, oh, this is a really cool story to follow. And when it finishes, they're like, okay, oh, I go to live. I to, I, yeah, I go to live. Or I need to. Oh, I wonder how he's doing this 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 season, um, which is really exciting for sport. But again, it's a it's 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 a massive challenge as well because there's lots of other passion industries who are also trying to tap into our time. And there's only 24 hours in a day, and we're probably asleep for eight hours of it, <laughs> and maybe working for a lot for a lot of the other stuff. So how do we? There's a lot of people really kind of trying to grab our attention. Um, but it's just, but it's but it's really exciting, and you know, the, just just tracking that. Uh, is is going to be fascinating and also trying to just get ahead of you know what you know what's the next roadblocks because if you can identify that before everyone else does then you kind of have a have a first mover advantage um so yeah that's that that's I, i'd say that's probably the main one that that i i think is of interest to in the sports industry there's also like to, to your point if roblox is bigger than fifa that's quite an interesting dynamic because if those two you know those two companies working together who who needs who, who's, who's who, who's the yeah who's where's the power in that relationship <laughs> it's kind of equal really isn't it because it's great for roblox if there's FIFA, if there's official fifa partnerships but also you know fifas of the world need need to be need to be engaging with fans in many areas as they can yeah 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 it's a power of relationships are changing in some ways and maybe it might be one of the shifts also in this industry is uh, the building of win-win relationships. Uh, not only you pay me to get these rights, but let's do something together yeah. and share and share. And in some business models like gaming, the EAs and with sports properties or Roblox and FIFA and or social media platforms. Why, why don't we think that tomorrow I'm going to pay a big amount of sponsorship, but you know what? The fix is going to be very low and, um, and the, the incentive one is going to be very high because if you get me leads, I'm going to pay you very well. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think it's a, I think it's a really good point. There's also that, the, I think that also requires a bit of a shifting mindset because yes. in the sports industry, there's a lot of people, basically people, well, often just get judged by how much money they bring in, and if that if that is the case, or if you're I don't know, if you're owned by a private equity firm who wants to sell you, or you're on the you know if you're listed on a stock exchange, it's all about revenue and profits. Sitting sitting back and actually just you know, thinking this this partnership is a long term solution that is going to pay off in fifteen or twenty years. Um, it's kind of easier said than done, right? But I, I completely agree with you. I think I think we're going to need to see way more of these partnerships because, yeah, I, th I think the world needs sport, and the, the sport sport needs the world. So it's it only makes more sense that everyone's working together. Yeah. What? Let's pick your brain. What do you think about the participation of VCs, uh, private equity in sports? Uh, you don't have to answer if you don't want to. No, 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 no. I've, I've, no, I, I, it's, it's an area I kind of track quite a lot, and 
I, I've thought about I've thought about quite a lot. I think the one thing I would say is I think particularly from like a fan perspective, the VC or private ownership of sports properties it always has red like an alarm bell or like a you know a red light flashing whenever that comes up because the mindset is always oh we know what's going to happen here someone's going to come in uh sell a load of players for instance if it's a football club or do this or cut costs and then try and flip us on um in the future and you know there's been examples of that and there's been examples of where you know private money's come in and uh i was thinking recently about the particularly in the premier league there was a before covid when lots of chinese money came into into football and then it kind of dried up and left quite a few rights holders screwed uh, but i think one of the i think one one thing and i've seen this firsthand one of the um things it does is that sport you know, sport is kind of compared to music or entertainment in terms of uh innovation is probably a five to ten years behind them and vc money coming in is something that can accelerate that it's definitely something that can accelerate that it's not it's not a bad thing in a capitalist world that we live in to be focused on uh, long term commercial growth it's not well i don't i don't think it's a bad thing to be making money and if you can make money in a sustainable way then that can only be a good thing um so i think and and you know investors vary by by their motivations and and things like that but we see um there's plenty of good examples of where private money's come in invested in it and even sold on and and the the sports properties in a better position formula better one position. formula one formula is one, yeah. formula one formula one good a good, a good example of that yeah. um so i don't think yeah i don't think uh i think it's ultimately positive for me but then maybe that's easy easy for me to say as someone who <laughs> who specializes in writing about the commercial <laughs> commercial world of sport <laughs> But on the opposite, you see some great examples like Formula One. And yesterday was announced that Cosmos and ITF deal is broken and was 25 years deal. Mm-hmm. And after five or two, four, done because it didn't work. So quite complex. Uh, yeah, quite complex. But it goes back to your point about partnerships as well, like particularly with something like that. It needs to... It's not a bad thing to be doing lots and lots of due diligence and thinking about signing these partnerships in the first place, because if if it's a right fit, sure, there can be external factors that impact partnerships. But I think if you're thinking long term in, in some of these kind of joint ventures, for want of a better phrase, it's ultimately going to be positive. And you think about something like the, something like the Davis Cup, the Davis Cup should be way bigger than it is. You know, yeah. it's it has all the it has all the makings of something that 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 should be you know everyone should be talking about over the course of the year yeah. um but yeah hard to know what happened in that situation yeah 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 so now you start your third chapter obviously you can't tell what what it is yet but what would you like what what, what is inspiring you Yeah, good. I think I think um the stuff that's inspiring me at the moment as we as we record this is the I've been working on a few different things which which almost go back to um kind of my sport business days and it's a really overused phrase so I slightly cringe as I say it, but just around storytelling storytelling in in the sports industry 
Um, so I've got a couple of projects that I'm working on. It, it's all about telling uh, telling, te- telling stories about the, the business of sport in, in, in new ways. And we've seen, uh, a bit like I said at the start, you know, we've seen there's way more interest in the sports industry from a, a mainstream perspective than there's ever been. Yeah. You know, the FIFA Uncovered series on Netflix. Um, I just saw, before I came on this call, someone promoting the um, Apple TV documentary about the Super League. Uh-huh. Um, this is all, you know, this is all focused on, you know, not you and I working in the sports industry, but just the average, you know, the average sports fan. Um, and so I'm so working on those projects is something that's really driving me at the moment. And I actually think that having been at two circles and walk and working in the industry rather than just being a bit on the peripheries and asking questions about it has, has made me a better journalist storyteller only because I just have a way better understanding of, I think what makes people tick and, what the right questions are to ask uh, at, well and my network is better so that that kind of helps <laughs> if you're trying to if you're trying to look for people to to, to talk to about stories um so i'm not saying that's me you know going back to journalism full-time but i feel like um that's something I'm, I'm i'm really exciting about excited about so just telling telling some new telling some new stories it's a storytelling expert <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> cool before we end uh, we've got um, always kind of a ritual uh, in our podcast, which is a series of quick questions or quick answers. Ready? Let's do it. I've purposely not prepared for this because uh, you told me about this before, but I didn't want to. Uh, uh, I, I want to cool. be. I want to be. Yeah. Spontaneous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Your favorite all-time athlete. The first one that comes to mind, and um, maybe that's because we were talking about rugby at the, t- at the start, but J- Johnny Wilkinson was always a big, oh. um, he's a bit big, fat, big fan of his. Always there when he needed to be, needed to be there. Uh, and the yeah, the drop goal he scored to to win the World Cup for England, rugby World Cup for England in two thousand and three. That was a special moment for me. Um, so yeah, not football, but yeah, so that's what I'd say. And what a gentleman on the field. Scored a lot of. Scored a lot of points against France over the years. Uh, I got used in the nineties to go to the stadium, <laughs> go to the game France England and lose. I got pretty much used <laughs> to it. <laughs> and Johnny Wicked somewhat part at the end of that yeah. period. So, yeah. <laughs> your your favorite event. Hmm, that's a good one. Um I always really like going to Wimbledon. Um, it's always I think Wimbledon's done a really good job over the years of mixing uh, like history and tradition and prestige but also just making it more, making it relevant and, and once you're in the I don't know whether you've ever been but once you're inside it's it's, a re- it's really great you feel like you're part of history and the quality of sport is, is fantastic as well um, and I can also get the tube the metro home which is also always nice <laughs> The temple of sport. Yes, I've been. Uh, I tell you that story. It's funny. When I was global sports marketing director from Lacoste, Gasquet was playing Federer on the first game. Um, first game. First game is, you know, yeah. it's, uh, how can I say? It's so big in tennis, the first game, because the, the, the field of play is immaculate. And immaculate. And I was negotiating a deal with a golf players. I was in the. I was supposed to be in the box of Gasquet, uh, so we had a special closing for Gasquet opening game, 
Federer has his own special closing. But I ended up late <laughs> to the beginning <laughs> of the game because I was negotiating my, one of my biggest mistakes in sport. <laughs> and then I was sitting in the box and it rained after 45 minutes. Mm. And that's it. No more tennis at Wimbledon for me ever. Oh, yeah. oh God. <laughs> <laughs> so that oh, was that's annoying. Special. But uh, Wimbledon, I've been to all Grand Slams and I'm French and I, my biggest sports memories are at Roland Garros. But Wimbledon is the best. It's a temple. And I yeah. guess it's, it's the essence of sports, a mix of, as you say, tradition and relevance. Uh, when you succeed in that, wow. Maybe what has been losing as a Davis Cup. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. favorite ever Wimbledon. Sorry, I spoke too much. What is your favorite, <laughs> favorite sound in a stadium? Uh, I, uh, this might sound strange. This might sound a bit strange, but I quite like silence. Has anyone ever said that? Some someone say uh, appreciate the silence in a football stadium. Yeah, I, I like. I, I thought that there's, uh, this is going to sound this is going to sound pretty weird, but um, there's there's been a there's been a movement now where you know if, at the start of a football game where you're commemorating someone. So like so so I watched I watched the game recently where so Gianluca Vialli just died, right? And yeah. all the all the Premier League teams are you know they're, they're marking it with something. Now the minute is is usually an applause. And I, which I understand, right? It's really, it's a good celebration of someone's life or, or something, mm. but there's something so powerful about when it's, when there's 40,000, 50,000 people and there's absolutely nothing. Yeah. It's very like, I, I, it's actually quite an emotional thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. That's, that, that's, a, I don't know. Silence came to mind immediately. <laughs> what is your favorite word? Related to sport or just or anything? Anything. God, I should be able to do this quicker given words of what I oh, because <laughs> what you have paid for. Maybe because you have many in mind. I tell you what, the, the, the word I... The word that springs to mind and I can never, you know... But bear in mind, I've been yeah paid to to write for almost yeah fifteen years now. Phenomenon is a word that I use quite a lot, and I can't I, I still can't spell it. <laughs> I always have to do the spell the spell checker on it. But I quite like that. I, I <clears throat> phenomenon. I, I use that quite a lot in my writing, um, just because I think it, it's quite a nice word to to talk about. I don't know something that is really exciting for the world, or this you know what's the latest phenomenon in. Um, yeah, in sport. What's that in French? Is it in, oh, oh, okay. in, Fran yeah. in French, it's Mbappé. <laughs> <laughs> nice. nice. Phenomen. Phenomen. Yeah. yeah. It must be, I think it must be Latin, doesn't it? Uh, it must be. Um, yeah. I'm not the best yeah. one on that, but uh, yeah, no. Phenomen. <laughs> What's your least favorite word? Oh, man. It's probably, it's probably something that I, I use quite a lot. Uh, someone might have said this before, but I always I, I've started saying pivot in terms of you know like what's what what strategy are we pivoting to? And I, I don't know. I just think there's 
it's, it's just the classic, but it's not just a sport thing, but like business buzzword. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, I, uh, whenever, I mean, like I say, I use it. And when I use it, I always just, oh, I give it a big sigh thinking, what have I become? <laughs> what, profi- what profession, also on your own, would you have liked to attempt or would you like to attempt? Um, I've always, like, I'm, I'm quite big into music and I would always, I, I'm always in awe of musicians um i try like basically when you're a kid in england you at school you have to like try and play an instrument and i i, I just basically couldn't do it. i couldn't read the music i couldn't get my hands in the right places and whenever i see people who are really good at music and definitely getting paid for it i'm always in awe because that's for me like if someone who can play the piano that's like for me that's like i'm back there, taking on <laughs> taking on 10 players and scoring i just um Yeah, in another life, if I could, if I could do that, that's what that's what I do. If you had one more hour every day, what would you like to do? Um, I this might come as a surprise, but I really, um, I really find it hard to um, sit down and read something. Huh. I I think I used to be better, but probably just the world around me. I'm quite good at reading stuff in short bursts, but I the amount of books that I've picked up and not finished or just got distracted. Um, and I really like reading. And I like the process of reading, e- e- whether it's a book or the paper or a magazine. Uh, so, yeah, if, if I could yeah, sit somewhere sunny and read, uh, I think that's what I'd do. Welcome to Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? <laughs> God. <laughs> uh... you, want to, you want him to hear God? <laughs> <laughs> yeah can you tell me what the uh yeah the latest villa score is uh ah, score last no, no, night no. yeah did you ah <laughs> uh, oh, that is a good question i think i'd probably oh I, I, this isn't a good answer but i think i would just be i'd be really interested to know i don't know why there's various things that uh i think about the world and if God does exist, like, like why they happen, you know, why is there huge amounts of famine out there or, you know, mm. poverty and things like that. And, you know, natural disasters. I just need an understanding of why that that's probably what um, I would ask. Okay. Can be a long conversation with God. Yeah. It'd be quite an intense <laughs> first thing. <laughs> intense first thing. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Explain me. <laughs> Yeah, we can see the journalist spirit in that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt. Thank you so much for you for this time with you. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's uh, gone very fast. Uh, yeah, I wish you the best for what's coming. Uh, I'm sure you're going to make some interesting choices, and wish you the best for these new endeavors. And we'll be in touch, and we'll share stories together. <laughs> Look forward to it. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Cheers, Matt. Cheers, Arno. Thank you all for listening to a new SIS Masters podcast. We'd love you to subscribe. Please leave a review or rate the podcast. It will help us improve. We'd love to see you in the next episode. Enjoy. Enjoy.